This podcast was supported by Grant 2016 MUMUK001, awarded by the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention. The opinions, findings, conclusions, and recommendations expressed in this podcast are those of the host and guests and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Department of Justice. Welcome, everyone, to the Reflections on Research podcast. I'm your host, Mike Geringer, the Director of Research and Evaluation at Mentor, the National Mentoring Partnership. Just a reminder that this episode is brought to you as part of our work on the National Mentoring Resource Center, or the NMRC, and that is the nation's leading source of training and technical assistance for youth mentoring programs. The center is sponsored through a cooperative agreement with the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention, or OJJDP, and they have a long history of investing in youth mentoring research and programming, including the really great study that we will be discussing today. So we certainly thank them for their generous support of both cutting-edge research, as well as projects like the NMRC that allow that research to reach a wider audience. And if this is your first time listening to an episode of Reflections on Research, Please note that you can always find new episodes of this series on the NMRC website at nationalmentoringresourcecenter.org.org, and you can always get the scoop on these and other work that the center is doing by subscribing to our monthly e-newsletter, and that's easy to do right there on the homepage of the website. So I'm really excited to have our two guests with us today. Uh, they've recently completed a really interesting research study, and I'm very excited to talk to both of them about their work. Um, and so I'd like to, to welcome our two guests today. First, we have Dr. Tom Keller. And Tom is the Duncan and Cindy Campbell Professor for Children, Youth, and Families with an emphasis on mentoring in the School of Social Work at Portland State University. He also serves as the Director of the Center for Interdisciplinary Mentoring Research and the Director of the Summer Institute on Youth Mentoring, which is one of my favorite events in the mentoring space. His research focuses on the development and influence of youth mentoring relationships and strategies for improving youth mentoring programs. He is also the co-PI of the Build Exito Initiative, which is a, a major NIH-funded project to support undergraduates uh, from traditionally underrepresented student populations in preparing for graduate studies in the health sciences. So welcome, Tom. Thanks, Mike. I'm glad for the opportunity to be with you. Also joining us today is his colleague on this uh, awesome study we'll be talking about, uh, Dr. Renee Spencer, and, and she is a professor and associate dean for research in the School of Social Work at Boston University. Renee's work focuses on youth mentoring generally, but also on mentoring special populations such as youth in foster care and military-connected youth. She also studies the role of gender and adolescent development in the application of mentoring relationships. And in a field that is somewhat dominated, I think, by uh, rigorous outcome evaluations and kind of hard numbers-based assessments of our work, I find her nuanced qualitative research to be immensely valuable and an essential component of truly understanding what happens when youth and caring adults come together in the context of a mentoring relationship. So thank you very much for joining us today, Renee. Thank you, Mike. It's great to be talking with you. 
So I'd like to start here by uh, talking a little bit about the topic of your study, which was match closure, specifically early match closure and what contributes to those early closures. And we we know how harmful those can be to young people when their relationship kind of fizzles out early. And uh, I just was hoping to get a sense from both of you of what drew you to this topic and why did you feel like examining this more closely about, about mentoring work? So uh, I'll start by saying that the full title of the study was Prediction and Prevention of Premature Closures of Mentoring Relationships, a Prospective Study of Participants, Processes, and Program Practices. So we went a little bit overboard with the alliteration, but um, I think that's a good reflection of what we were aiming for. This was a collaborative effort that uh, included partnership with Big Brothers Big Sisters of America, BBBSA, and four Big Brothers Big Sisters agencies and our research team at both uh, Portland State University and Boston University. And the project was funded by OJJDP. Um, for me, as mo with most of my mentoring research, the um, interest came from my own experiences working in a Big Brothers Big Sisters program many years ago. Uh, I really want the research I do to be relevant to programs and be used in a way that can help to enhance and refine their practices. Um, in this case, the study was actually prompted by uh, Big Brothers Big Sisters of America, whose research department identified this topic around closures as a priority. And Renee and I were already very interested in investigating the development of relationships. So it was natural for us to come together and, and work together on this project. For me, and I think for Renee also, it's really fascinating to see what happens when two strangers are introduced to each other through a formal mentoring program. And when I worked at Big Brothers Big Sisters, I was part of the excitement of making a new match, but I also had to deal with the fallout when matches closed under difficult circumstances. So there could be you know, uh, disappointment on both sides. And of course, we want to address that on the individual level with each match. But I also think this issue is important at a program level. Um, many programs are trying to serve more uh, youth and, and grow. Um, but there's so much emphasis on time and effort on the front end with recruiting, screening, matching, which is really important, but sometimes not as much attention to sustaining and preserving matches. So um, when addressing growth or striving for growth, I like to point out that program quality leads to match quantity. If you're not helping matches stay together, it's like filling a bucket that has a hole in it. So um, I think that's why for me, trying to keep matches going as long as possible and making them a positive experience for all of the participants is, is so critical. And I was also delighted with the opportunity to work with Renee because she has been very courageous in addressing the uncomfortable issue of match closure in her previous research. Um, she's done the, the most thorough and um, interesting research on this topic. So um, it was really a pleasure to work with her. Thanks, Tom. Renee, obviously this, as Tom just said, built on some of your work. Was there something about this particular project that, uh, that really interested you and, and made you want to be involved? Oh, yes. I mean, in addition to having the opportunity to work with Tom, who's just a terrific colleague and has been a great um, partner on this project, and to work with Big Brother, Big Sister, I mean, to have them sort of come to us and say they were interested in this was, you know, music to my ears, I think music to both of our ears, both 
Tom and me. Um, but I'll say too, you know, it really, the, it cuts to the heart of kind of the most central questions for me about mentoring, which is understanding the processes that work in these relationships and what's happening when they go well and what's happening when they don't go so well. And really understanding that is kind of the very heart of the matter for me. And I had started with a study of kind of highly successful mentoring relationships way back in the beginning um, when I first got interested in this field. And it was a lot of fun, you know, to look at those relationships, particularly coming coming to being a researcher, having been a clinical social worker. You know, it's great to hear these great stories. Um, but at the end of that study, I really started wondering about the flip side, you know, relationships that hadn't made it and began sort of asking some of those questions. And I have to tell you, at the time, I had people say to me, like, why would you want to do that? What could you possibly learn by doing that? Which I thought was really interesting. And I think it was, it spoke to the excitement that we often share about mentoring um, and what mentoring can do and how difficult it can be to, to look at this flip side, look at when things don't go so well. And um, I think Tom and I share, you know, the sense that there's just so much that can be learned from looking at um, relationships that aren't going so well. So this just really drew me in from the get-go as being kind of questions that are of, of um, central interest and are kind of near and dear to my heart. Thanks, Renee. And, and I appreciate both of you and your work over the years kind of being willing to look at the parts of mentoring that don't work out so well. I'm I'm one of those people myself, and I've always appreciated your willingness to kind of dive into the messy parts of this and, and understand them so that we can, uh, you know, hopefully prevent those types of things from happening to the degree that they do. So, Tom, I want to start by giving you a chance to just kind of set the stage around this study. And I believe you wound up shortening that title a little bit to the study to analyze relationships uh, or the STAR study. So uh, while I appreciated you reading off the whole lengthy alliterative title that you <laughs> had for this, I think we'll refer to it as the STAR project from now on. Um, but I'm hoping you can give folks a sense, you've talked about this a little bit, but just what the project looked like in terms of the participating agencies, uh, how many matches you were looking at, and, and what were the core research questions you were hoping to answer? Sure. As I mentioned, we collaborated with four Big Brothers, Big Sisters agencies that were carefully selected for their size and capacity to undertake research. This was a natural history study. We didn't want to interfere with their practice. We just wanted to observe what naturally happened in the relationships that they were establishing in the program. In the broadest sense, we had two goals with the study. Uh, first, we had a prospective or forward-looking part where we wanted to see if we could use what was known before the match started to predict which relationships would be more successful and last longer than others. Uh, for this part, we collected information from all participants before the match. And by that, I mean, we're, we're taking a systemic view that uh, there are several key people to making a mentoring relationship work. Of course, the big, the big brother, big sister, the mentor, uh, as well as the the youth, but also um, because their youth, um, their their dependents, they have parents and guardians that have to be involved in the process, and also the agency has an ongoing role in supporting the match. So we wanted to capture all of those perspectives, and so we did assessments before matches were made with the the mentor, the youth, the parent, 
And we also had background information on the the match support specialist. So based on what what we knew about the characteristics of those individuals and the combinations when they were matched, we wanted to know if we could predict which ones would end up being more more successful. Uh, we tried to recruit all the volunteers as they were going through the intake process, and we um, involved about a hundred a thousand uh, volunteers uh, at that stage. And then, as those mentors were proposed for a match, we contacted the parent and youth to invite them to be part of the study as well. And we ended up with three hundred and fifty six matches with all parties, the the mentor, the parent, and the youth participating. And we followed each of those new matches for at least 15 months. Then we had the other part of the study, which was retrospective or backward looking. And um, in that event, we were wanting to find out what actually happened in the matches that closed during the study period. So uh, we conducted surveys with all the parties after closure to get their input on what, why the match ended, how it happened, things like that. And then we also did an in-depth qualitative interviews with a subset of matches. So all of this was sort of a forensic approach to disentangle the factors that affected the relationship and to tell the story about why the match uh, ended and how it ended. Great. Thanks, Tom. And I want to dive right into the findings here, right? I, let's not tease the audience around what you found. Uh, I'm you know, hoping you can talk a little bit here about you know, what was the percentage of matches that made it to kind of their initial one-year commitment or if they made it longer and, and kind of you had a, a slightly longer window here for the study, you know, what percentage made it to that that endpoint? And, and what were the reasons behind that? I'm curious to hear if they were kind of preventable things or whether you found that it was mostly kind of random, unpreventable factors that were driving some of those closures. So of the 356 star matches that um, we involved in the study, a total of 109 matches, or about 31%, ended before the 12-month anniversary of the match. And in the Big Brothers Big Sisters program, the initial commitment is to have a one-year relationship. So that's sort of the, the target, and um, 31% didn't, didn't quite get there. Um, that's actually at the lower range of what has been seen in previous studies where, you know, the, the one-year closure rate might be anywhere from 30% to 50%. Um, because we were following them a little bit longer, we found that a total of 42% of the matches ended prior to 15 months. And, you know, we had rolling um, enrollment in our study, so we were recruiting matches over more than a year. But during the entire 40-month window in which we followed up with them, a total of uh, 237 match closures occurred, which was 67% of all of our study matches. But that meant that uh, you know a third of the matches were still intact at the end of our study period. And we were able to estimate the the mean or average um, match length, which turned out to be 21.8 months. Uh, and the estimated median match length was about 18 and a half months. So, um, you know, that, that indicates that many matches did go well beyond 12 months to bring up that average. 
overall, the majority of the match closures, about 64%, were attributed to a volunteer-oriented reason in the you know, official records of, of Big Brothers Big Sisters programs. The volunteer-oriented re- reasons were somewhat more likely for closures occurring after 12 months uh, than before 12 months. The residential moves were the cause of roughly a quarter of all the closures when you think about the mentor or the child and family moving. A sizable percentage of match closures, about 20%, were attributed to a loss of contact with either the mentor or the child and family. So the agency lost touch with them and they kind of checked out. And so eventually they they closed the match. Mentors reported time constraints as as a common reason for closure. You know, it's it's hard to know exactly what is meant by that. Some of the qualitative interviews that uh, we did revealed what they meant by that. And I think Renee is going to explain a little bit more about that. Thanks, Tom. And yeah, Renee, I'd like to bring you in here to talk a little bit about um, some of these, what we might think of as, as perhaps more preventable reasons, because you can't always predict, oh, I, I got a new job in a different city and I, I have to move or you know, in the case of a young person who, you know, may be moving, uh, changing schools or, or whatever that may be, you know, those largely are unpreventable reasons. But you dove into some of these things that I think could be perhaps a little bit more preventable, right? Which is, oh, I didn't realize how much time this was going to take. Well, you know, you should have gone through an orientation that explained that, right? So in your work, what did you find what were the things that predicted whether pairs made it to that, you know, initial commitment period, or or did you find things that predicted whether you know they they wouldn't? Perhaps I have to imagine that if the relationship is going well and everyone's happy in it, that they'd be more likely to stick it out and and have that longer match. But what did you find around reasons behind closure? So we're going to be able to do some really interesting predictive analyses with the quantitative data and with that full large sample. We got some we we got some work to do on that front. We're not really there, but from the qualitative data, just as you've been talking about, Mike, we have learned a few things. And at, just as you say, the mentor youth relationship really is key. And if they're having a good time and things are going well, you know that's a good prescription for longevity. Um, in particular, you know the youth has to be interested and willing to engage. Um, We saw a few cases where that wasn't really the case. It was an adult's idea. But for the most part, I have to say the youth we interviewed were quite interested and engaged and were pretty happy with their matches. Um, It's the mentors where things got a little trickier. Um, And for them, it also helps if they're really enjoying it. But really what matters more than that is how committed they are, how willing they are to adapt and meet that young person wherever they are. And that sometimes means letting go of their own expectations for the relationships. And I got to say that mentors can have some mighty big expectations going into these mentoring relationships. And then when they're confronted with the reality of how mundane and even incredibly frustrating and challenging relationship building can be, you know, especially when you think about um, building a relationship with young people who are living in families that are, you know, dealing with material hardship and sometimes some pretty complicated circumstances, you know, mentors can get pretty disillusioned, disappointed and, and just plain give up. All of that said, I think one of the interesting things we learned, and we learned this by applying a model for mentoring relationships that Tom developed some years ago now, kind of thinking about the interrelationships between not just the mentor and youth, 
but the mentor and the parent, um, the mentor and the program staff person, the parent and the program staff person. And applying Tom's model, his systemic model of mentoring relationships to these relationships and kind of looking closely at them, we also learned that that kind of strong mentor-youth relationship, while necessary, turns out to not be sufficient by itself, it really can't weather some of the disruptions that can happen. We, we, we found that even the strongest relationships are hard-pressed to withstand significant disruptions in other relationships in the system, like a challenging relationship between a mentor, a parent and a mentor when they're just not on the same page and can't quite uh, you know, come to some shared agreement about how things are going to work and what the relationship's going to be, be like. And also, you know, the agency contextual factors really matter. Um, so program practices and policies, staffing patterns. So whether there's a lot of staff turnover and match support, you know, has a critical role to play in sustaining these matches. So all of these relationships, it turns out, directly influence um, the mentor-youth relationship and, you know, have a role to play in whether or not they can be sustained over time. Can I add a couple of uh, notes to that? Sure, go ahead. So um, Renee mentioned the importance of, of youth engagement, and one thing we heard was that some um, youth, because they were on the waiting list so long, kind of lost interest over time, and by the time they were matched, the, the window of opportunity had passed. And sometimes we had matches that where it was a, a, a second time around for a youth, a rematch, or they had a, a sibling who was also in the program. And so there were some comparisons of, you know, this new mentor with the one they had before or their brother or sister's match. So um, things like that can affect the the youth's um, excitement about the relationship. And on the mentor side, we've, we heard some of them sort of make a judgment pretty early on that they didn't think the youth needed a mentor and sometimes they weren't aware of other things happening in the youth's life, but they felt like maybe they weren't making a difference or it wasn't a good use of their time. So again, that's where a communication from the parent or the staff member can help the mentor understand more about the situation and keep them invested. Thanks, Tom. And I really appreciate the fact that you looked at this from not just you know the mentor-mentee perspectives, but brought in that that framework that Tom has developed that really, you know, views parents and and the staff themselves as part of a, a little ecosystem, right, around the match and and that all of those relationships between all those participants have a have some bearing on on how this goes. I want to circle back to something that you mentioned a little bit, Renee, and and Tom, I don't know if you've got more to say around this, and that's the idea of expectations. The expectations that mentors, parents even the staff uh, at the program itself brought to these new relationships. And I know you guys collected some interesting data about how long each of those groups thought the match would last at the time that it was made. And I know that in the case of mentors, and you touched on this a little bit, Renee, kind of an overconfidence that this is going to be this lifelong, amazing experience by the mentors. It seemed like those were the mentors that often struggled to kind of stick with it when the real life experience didn't match that expectation. But I don't know if that was the case for parents or or the expectations that staff themselves had around it. And I'm just hoping you could talk a little bit about how, you know, expectations, particularly like overly enthusiastic expectations, uh, differed amongst these groups and what that might mean for for people running programs. Is there something we can do to kind of set good and reasonable expectations around some of this? 
Yeah, well, we, of course, want um, this study and the findings to be relevant for programs. So we wanted to identify some pretty straightforward questions that might be used in a screening process um, and then to see whether they would actually predict what, what happened in the relationship. And we found a, a, f a few things relating to expectations. First of all, there was a simple question about sort of what mentors wanted to, how they were approaching the match and what they wanted to get out of it. So we found that mentors who expected to enjoy fun activities had longer lasting matches than those who wanted to focus on things like achieving goals or developing a meaningful bond or connecting around intellectual interests. So again, those are not, those are very um, worthy things to do. But it, again, it seems like those who sort of took a more of a a fun approach uh, rather than, you know, having a lot of goals fared a little bit better. Uh, mentors who expected to have challenges spending time with their mentees were more likely to have early ending relationships. So again, um, just being upfront about, do you think this is going to be a difficult time commitment was informative in terms of predicting um, match duration. Um, and then the one you were sort of referring to, um, we we simply asked the mentors how long they expected their relationship to last. And we had a few uh, response categories for them. They could say, you know, less than a year, one year, which was the, you know, the agency goal, two to three years, four to five years, six to 10, or then things like until the child has grown up or forever, or maybe not sure. And we found that the the mentors who wanted this to be a forever relationship, or the ones who said they were not sure ended up having matches close much sooner than the ones that were sort of in a realistic range, like two to th three years or four to five years. Um, so again, it may be that those expectations for a lifelong relationship were setting them up for, you know, being disappointed. Or if they said they were not sure, maybe they thought this was very tentative even going into it. In contrast, when we asked the same kind of question to the parent or guardian about how long they wanted to see the relationship last, they had the same response options. And actually, in this case, um, the actual relationship length corresponded directly with what they wanted. In other words, the ones that um, said, oh, you know, a year or less were the most likely to end soon. The ones that wanted to keep it going longer and longer maybe even until the child has grown up, were the ones that ended up having the longer relationships. So the parents maybe are, you know, working at it according to what they anticipated as the, the length. And, you know, if, if it was really a goal to keep it going for a really long time, there may be a, a, a way that parents are helping to make that happen. That's really interesting. And I it does make me wonder, you know, do we do a good enough job when young people and their, their family comes into a program of sitting down with that parent and talking to them about what is the experience you're looking for and, you know, really keeping that in mind throughout, you know, the matchmaking process and, and the way the matches is, is supported. It, I find that interesting that they kind of were able to get what they wanted out of it. And, and my guess is that you're right, you know, probably, those that wanted this to be a long-term thing probably worked at it a little bit harder to make it a long-term thing. You're probably more willing to overcome some bumps in the road along the way if you if you come to it with that that mindset. Um, just real quick, Tom, did you ask the mentees themselves how long they thought this would last? Did you ask the the youth? 
We didn't actually ask them the same question about how long, but we did ask them some other questions like how excited they were to be getting matched, whether they were involved in seeking the mentor. In other words, was it their idea? Things like that to gauge their um, level of um, engagement. But we actually haven't um, used that data yet to look at at whether it predicts anything. Uh, We plan to do that um, as soon as we can. Sure. And I know you did also ask staff how long they thought the matches they had just made would last. And if I recall, I heard you talk about this previously. Like It sounded like staff often also felt like, you know, every match they made was going to last 10 years. Or so. And, you know, I don't blame them. I mean, you that's your job is you're making matches. And of course, you're making ones that you think are rock solid. But I, I just found that interesting that even staff would sometimes have these outsized expectations for for how long they thought it might go, knowing that in just the reality of their program, that's not usually how it goes. So. Right. We we asked them right after the match was made, so right after the introduction, um, to, to give some feedback based on that first interaction. And we asked them, you know, in a sort of probability way, what's the chance this is going to turn out to be a strong relationship and, and what's the chance this is going to last for a year? And on average, they said, about a 90% chance. Um, so, so they were very optimistic, but they were hedging their, their bets, like not, not guaranteed. But we found that it, it, because they were all in that range, basically between 80 to 100% chance, um, it, it really didn't end up being very informative as, as a predictor. Renee, I want to circle back with you here and talk a little bit more about the reasons people gave you for why the match ended and kind of the stories that they told in in the interviews that you did. Um, you know, I, uh, knowing that you were kind of looking at these matches holistically and involving parent perspectives and perspectives of staff and kind of just going beyond the mentor-mentee dyad, I'm curious to you know, as to whether there were conflicting stories about why a match had closed. And, you know, uh, I'm just wondering how prevalent that was, where participants themselves were seeing things from really different perspectives. And you were getting one story, say, from the mentor and a whole different story from either a staff person or, or the parent about what had happened. You know, yes, Mike, that is one of the really interesting and I think important parts about taking a systems perspective is that you you do sometimes have participants who have pretty different perspectives on what happened. And then we as researchers also have our vantage point. So we can kind of put those different perspectives together and as an outsider, listen to those perspectives and kind of come to some kind of deeper understanding perhaps of what contributed to the relationship closures Um, A common example of this was when mentors would say they were ending the relationship because they were too busy. You know, Tom talked earlier about those time constraints as being a big factor for why mentors ended their, you know, ended their relationships. And in the qualitative interviews, we heard that of, oh, I just got too busy. Um, So you could sort of leave it at face value and go, yeah, I can relate. You know, I got really busy. But when you listen to their responses to lots of other questions about how they were experiencing the relationship. And then looking through the case notes as we were able to do, because we had case notes on all of these matches, we had the contact logs from when the program staff, you know, tried to email or call or had a um, 
email or phone conversation with that mentor. And you could sometimes see along the way where the mentor was increasingly withdrawing from the relationship, where they were feeling frustrated or they weren't quite sure what to do. Um, and you see this withdrawal. And then listening to the parent and the youth in that same relationship, they're not really picking up on that. They're just having a sense of, um, I don't know, we just weren't getting together and I'm not really sure what happened. Um, so really kind of different stories about what was happening in that in that relationship. And then there are also other factors that can play a role that, you, again, you don't always hear by just listening to one person's narrative or story about the relationship. And an example that really stands out to me from our cases was a case in which we had a mentor who kind of early in the relationship planned this big outing for he and his mentee. And, you know, he spent a significant amount of money on some tickets for he and his mentee. And then the youth's guardian, who happened in this case to be his grandmother, had car trouble and the car wasn't ready in time to get the young person to the outing. And this um, grandparent, who admittedly said she wasn't the best communicator sometimes, didn't get word to the mentor till after the fact. So the mentor essentially got stood up. And the mentor felt so frustrated by this that he just decided to end the match, you know, saying to the youth and um, to the young person's grandmother that it was just too complicated for him uh, to keep the commitment. Now, from our vantage point, we also heard this mentor talk about feeling some frustration of feeling like this grandmother wasn't that invested in the child or in the relationship, and a mentor really struggling with having a sense of the material hardships that this family was facing and how that can kind of interfere with their ability and capacity to um, show up at a designated time reliably. And when your transportation isn't very reliable, then you don't always make it to places as you'd hoped or promised on time. And this mentor just really struggled with kind of taking that perspective and instead, you know, felt hurt, frustrated and put off and like the family wasn't invested. Talking to the family, we had a sense of how the young person and his grandparent were both quite invested in the relationship. Um, so it's, you know, that sense of you put those stories together and kind of a different picture emerges. And I think a set of opportunities for where mentoring programs could kind of intervene and assist in situations like this um, to try to help repair and kind of keep this relationship going rather than having a mentor sort of just give up. Because I think in this case example I gave you, you know, the mentor's frustration with that incident kind of got the better of him, um, despite the fact that, you know, he had really talked about very much enjoying the time he actually spent with his mentee. So it was, it was a shame. You know, that was one of those cases where we were looking at this relationship and feeling it was a real loss and something that could have potentially been repaired. Uh, that's kind of heartbreaking, <laughs> to be honest. And I'm sure you had a, several examples like that from the interviews you did. And what a great reminder to programs that, you know, you got to check in with more than just one of these perspectives, right? It uh, It's important to really get different vantage points and different feedback from all of these participants because, you know, oftentimes the the story that one of those parties would be telling is is not the whole story. You also just made me think, Renee, of some data that we recently collected from our Power of Relationships study where, you know, we asked mentors and programs kind of what's challenging about being a mentor in a structured program. And I want to say like 73% of them cited scheduling conflicts as either a, a major or a minor hurdle and kind of the time commitment as a, a major or minor hurdle. And I'm now wondering like how much of that is is that actually being an issue and how much of it is people using that perhaps as an excuse for you know, general dissatisfaction with how it's going. Oh, I'm just going to say it's it's too time consuming. It's too hard to schedule. When really, that's a proxy for 
you know, perhaps other negative things they were feeling about it. Communication with the family was also pretty highly rated as a, a common challenge for programmatic mentors. And you know, once again, I think that just highlights the need for staff to kind of be engaged and be involved in that and, and help parse out, you know, what's really happening. Because uh, we obviously don't want matches ending when they probably shouldn't, like the example that you just gave. And that's a nice segue, I think, into the next question I wanted to ask both of you, and we'll start with you, Renee, here on this. But, you know, flipping this around and, and thinking about the audience that's listening to this today, uh, you know, what, what should programs be taking away from this? Uh, you know, what what can we really do from your study and what you found here to what are the programmatic factors that that kind of play into why these matches closed or why they in, endured and, and kept going? Uh, what would you tell our audience about kind of programmatic things that they can do to, to help make this better? Oh, gosh, Mike. I mean, there's there are a number of things, I think. But let me um, just think about a couple. And I actually want to go back to some of those points you were just making and link in with those as well. And say, you know, you were talking about um, the possibility of when those mentors say scheduling conflicts, that it could be, um, you know, a, a proxy for something else, or it could be it's pretty tough to schedule. And I would say it's likely both. Um, and that's something that I think we really have to pay attention to and programs really need to pay attention to, that these families have pretty complicated circumstances. We had a number of families in the sample who had other children, not the mentee, but another child in the family in the hospital, um, in a couple cases for extended periods of time. So the parents would be quite difficult to reach, as you might imagine, under those circumstances. So you have three or four children, you've got one in the hospital, you've got transportation issues. It can make communication and scheduling quite difficult. So I really think it is important for programs to really help mentors understand kind of what some of these families are up against and that uh, to really set the expectation that it's likely not going to be smooth to try to communicate. I think that's one of the things that we saw from mentors is that they sort of expected it to go easy. And we learned from trying to contact the families to simply do these interviews. We we got to the point we never expected it to go easy. We expected it actually to be really difficult to get a hold of them and were super pleasantly surprised when it wasn't. So I think, you know, again, back to that other theme of expectation setting that, you know, when you're engaging in these systems with families that have pretty complicated circumstances, it's going to be complicated um, to communicate and schedule with them and sort of set that expectation from the get-go. I'll segue that kind of into a larger point that I have, which is I think that, you know, in these community-based matches, so much rides on the mentor. We uh, send these mentors out to build a relationship from scratch, basically with a young person where they have, they have nothing else um, sort of binding them together from the outset. They have to sort of build that together. So, you know, I think we need some pretty highly committed people in that role. So, uh, you know, I know that mentoring programs have a hard time recruiting mentors and they're, they're always trying to get enough mentors to serve the numbers of youth that are knocking at their doors. But I really think for these community-based matches, this is a case where beggars ought to be choosers, um, be very choosy about the mentors that get selected, and then really invest in the mentors that they do choose. So finding the mentors who have stable life circumstances, who are going to be able to stick around to the best of their knowledge. And, you know, you can ask a set of questions. So a uh, 23-year-old who's thinking about graduate school next year may not be the best community-based mentor because that person's likely to move. Do they have enough stability in their life that they can really weather the ups and downs that they're likely to encounter in these relationships and with these families? So being super choosy about mentors, mentors who can stick to their commitments, who have stability, 
and then supporting those mentors. So, you know, mentoring program staff can really be experts in relationships, if you will. And, you know, then their role becomes to support those mentors in navigating this, what can be sometimes complicated, highly personal, and sometimes pretty emotionally challenging terrain. And the, and the terrain can change over time. So, you know, really investing in getting to know those matches and those relationships well, um, taking the time to get the multiple perspectives on them and really supporting those mentors as they, you know, uh, make this commitment and really try to engage this person and stay engaged over the long haul. So when the going gets rough, I think there's a role for the program to come in and play and really support that mentor and shore that mentor up to help keep them going um, and keep them connected. Thanks, Renee. So Tom, did you have anything to add around kind of programmatic things that uh, those working in programs can do to address some of what you've uncovered in this study? Yeah. First of all, I'll, I'll point out that the um, subsample of cases where we did the more in-depth look with the qualitative interviews that, that Renee has been discussing, that those were matches that that closed for reasons other than, you know, those unpreventable things like uh, somebody moved away or, you know, there was a simple explanation. So we we are looking at some of the more complicated uh, closure situations um, that involved the interpersonal um, dynamics. And so I, I just wanted to, to note that because we recognize that the the task of the staff person can be challenging, um, you know, again, to be in touch with all of these uh, participants and to understand from each perspective what's going on and to, you know, work with them to have stronger relationships and do the problem solving and everything. So we we know that it's it's difficult work, challenging work, but it can be very rewarding to see, you know, the success of a, of a good mentoring relationship. Um, and there are some really tricky decisions to be made uh, when you're managing a match. Uh, for example, we heard from some bigs that they were a little bit uh, disappointed or upset that they hadn't been told more about the family situation going into it. So again, it gets back to some of those expectations. But in some cases, they felt like, well, I didn't know this was going on and I feel misled or uninformed or something like that. But I know from you know making matches and working with families, you're sort of not sure how much to share. Um, you don't want to to scare off a mentor if you think it's a situation where, you know, it can be managed and the mentor could really help. And again, there's some privacy issues going into it, you know, and and maybe over time, um, more is learned about the situation. But I, I mean, just just that it can be. Um, a challenge to figure out what are those boundaries and what information does the mentor need going into it and and then how to support the mentor once they find out what what uh, what's the situation is so you know there's there's no there is some advice we can give um, to programs and staff but it's not always the easiest advice I think what Renee was saying is you know to have these kind of more nuanced understandings about relationships and understanding family situations, because we, we often um, heard cases where either the mentor or the even the staff person might have been a bit judgmental because they, they got frustrated um, with the family situation or just didn't have great awareness about what was going on. The last thing I'll note is that 
we're not sure there were a lot of conversations about the relationship itself. Like, are they checking in to basically talk about, are we on the right um, page here? Um, and, and to normalize that it can be hard to have these relationships and keep them going and that everybody needs support for problem solving. So, you know, the match support specialist is there for a reason because, you know, not every relationship is going to be smooth sailing. And just to, to let the participants know that um, they should seek backup and support whenever they're sensing that, that something's not working out well. You know, as, as a result of some of the early findings we had from this study, um, we actually worked with Mentor to develop some tools that could provide some assistance to programs around this topic. And we realized that, as we were saying, the, the, the staff role can be challenging and often the caseload of the staff is pretty overwhelming. And that there, there maybe has to be, um, you know, more time for them to invest in supporting these relationships. So Mentor developed a nice staffing calculator that accounts for the various tasks that a staff person would have to make sure that the workload is manageable. And Mentor also, because we had been using this sort of systemic approach to looking at the relationship in a holistic way, developed a multidimensional relationship assessment where it prompts the um, agency worker to check in on each of those different relationships um, and think about that, that whole network of relationships that have to be aligned and working together. Yeah, thanks for mentioning those, Tom. I was going to bring those up towards the end of the, the session here. Uh, what Tom's referring to is we put together a suite of tools that we want to, I think, calling tools to support match closure and, and you know, something along those lines. Folks can find those tools on the National Mentoring Resource Center website. So if you go to uh, nationalmentoringresourcecenter.org, there's a section called the Learning Hub, and you will see those tools listed there. We also included a set of questions around early match expectations. So if I'm a staff person working with you know the parent, the mentor, the young person, I can get a sense of everyone's expectations and I will know up front, oh, this might be a sticking point. You know, the parent wants the mentor to come in and talk about how their outing was every time they, they take the young person out for a, a meeting. The mentor may be thinking, oh, I just need to pull up in front of the house and let the kid out of my car and and that's the extent of it. And so right there, you've identified kind of preemptively a, a point of friction that may wind up, you know, causing some of the conflict that... Uh, as Renee found, would lead to these matches, you know, uh, disintegrating because of some misunderstanding. So, um, so yes, there's there's that. There's a, a match assessment tool uh, that looks at many different dimensions of how the the mentor, youth, parent are all getting along, and then and then also that staffing calculator, which really tries to put an hour amount on how much work it takes to support a match over the course of a year in the program, and it even differentiates between is this a new match that is kind of in those early tough stages or is this an ongoing match that's been together for three years and maybe they need a little bit less help from our staff and overcoming hurdles along the way. So uh, folks want to check those out. They're available for download on the, the National Mentoring Resource Center website. And I'm glad you mentioned caseload, Tom, and kind of how challenging it can be to check in with everybody and 
and do all of the things on paper that you say your program does. And that that really brings me to my last question that I want to ask about the study that, that you and Renee did here. And that is around the closure and kind of a final closure meeting, a goodbye, so to speak, for that young person. And you found, I believe, that really low percentages of mentees in these matches that, that kind of fizzled out early, a very low percentage of them got a closure experience that included some kind of goodbye from the mentor and a final meeting and a, you know, thank you for, for being in this with me. Uh, I, I think it was only like half of those matches or for half of them, there was no goodbye. There was just, that was it. It fell apart and, and we never got a chance to say goodbye. And I have to admit the first time I read that, I was a little all upset by it because I just pictured all of these kids kind of being abandoned by their mentor and having this very confusing experience and this relationship that kind of just fizzled and went away. And, you know, I don't want to give listeners the wrong impression about the programs that you were working with here who were very open and let you come in and and study just how this plays out in their day-to-day work. And I know that those programs were extremely committed to providing a meaningful closure experience for as many participants as they could. But the reality was is that sometimes that really just didn't happen. And so I'm hoping you can talk a little bit about, you know, just what programs experienced around providing that closure, what got in the way of those goodbye meetings happening, and what can programs do to kind of help young people have some closure to this experience so that they they don't wind up being hurt by that. Our, our study is mixed methods, which means, again, we got some survey data that we can analyze with um, percentages and averages and so forth. And then, again, the, the richer interview data that gives us that in-depth picture. So I, I can share some of the, the, the stats, and then Mene might have some comments about the, the how um, closure process worked. But we found that based on the MSS, the match support specialist, Reporting to us after a match closure, we found that um, an in-person final meeting between the mentor and the youth at the time of the closure took place for only about a quarter of the cases. For another 10% or so of the closures, a final meeting was planned but never occurred. And so in a majority of cases, 63% of a final meeting was never, never planned to end the match. It was also extremely rare for an MS, a match support specialist, to play a role in arranging or facilitating a match closure meeting. Again, there weren't many happening, but um, it was more common for the agency person to coach the mentor or the parent or guardian about how to manage the relation, ending of the relationship and how to say goodbye. So we also found that only about half of the match support specialists were were satisfied with the way that the ending of the match was handled. So again, they had the same kind of uh, feeling that you might've had, like, I wish I could have, you know, had some way for them to, to get together and say goodbye and, and wrap it up in a, in a me- meaningful way. So I think there were some challenges around that. Again, sometimes they, the matches were closing because they lost touch with, with participants and they just couldn't, you know, contact them anymore. So it's not always possible but you know, it, it seems nice to have a, a closure procedure where they can review what happened in the match and 
you know, share appreciation and talk about the um, the good times and also, you know, address any any other issues at that point. But again, Renee may have some other insights about how those relationships were ended, um, how, how they went about that process. It seems like in a lot of times the, the child was informed by the parent of, about the ending. Yes, that's right, Tom. I mean, I think that the, that, that was the most common scenario is the parent ended up being the communicator. Um, I, you know, and, and I think that uh, part of what makes this so challenging is that it's hard to say goodbye. Um, I, I'm not sure many of us are that good at it, myself included, I would say. It's not something I would look forward to or be excited about doing. So I think it's an easy thing to want to avoid, or it's just, you know, simply not as much fun as making the new matches and um, the excitement of the beginnings. And then there can also be a lot of feelings wrapped up at the end, which is something we definitely saw, you know, when looking at, at these um, cases in a, in a bit more depth. It was really rare, as Tom is saying, for there to be a good, clean, clear end of, you know, the relationship meeting um, where the mentor and the mentee and sit down and, you know, have a chance to sort of say what the experience was like for them. And, you know, this is going to be the end. And, you know, to just sort of mark that um, time in the relationship more common were attempts to leave messages that maybe the mentor hope got received or vice versa. I think programs try to wrap things up with an official letter at the end when all else fails. So there's, there was usually some kind of official marking of the end of the relationship, but too often. And I think not, as you were noting, Mike, not out of, I think these are programs that are actively working to do a very good job. And I don't think they're happy either about sort of seeing these messy endings, but I think it's, it's really a reflection of the larger field and kind of our lack of attention to this really important part of the mentoring process. And I think when programs can't get the participants to do this, which is the case, as Tom was alluding to, where you, you know somebody's not responding to calls anymore, which is part of why the match is ending, then it's hard to have a goodbye. I think there's a real role, and I think there are programs out there who are doing this kind of thing for the program to step in and to create a goodbye with the person that is responding. So if the mentor's not responsive, they can't get a hold of that person, um, you know, that the program can then step in and have a final meeting with the young person, with the parent to kind of review how things went and thoughts going forward. And I think what is really important for young people is to have some explanation for what happened, because what kids do when there's no explanation is they will quickly turn to deciding that it was something about them. So what was it about them that made their mentor leave? And that's really the very last thing we want to have happen. So that's why it's really important when the mentor can't do it for the program to step in and offer an explanation and offer a, a closure process and, and um, also to together figure out what next steps are. Is this young person going to get rematched? Is this young person going to get involved in other things in their lives? It's not about this mentoring program, but sort of having a forward looking piece of that uh, process as well. I think the other factor about this is... Um, you know, to really prepare people at the outset. Closure isn't something that happens at the end of the match alone. I think there are ways that programs could be preparing people for closure right from the very beginning, making an expectation, just like there's a expectation for frequency of meetings and for length of match, you know, um, priming people for, you know, if something were to happen and you're not able to keep the commitment or when this commitment reaches its 
you know, we reach the end of this commitment time, then one of the expectations is going to be that we end this well, that we have, you know, come together and have a process out of processes and procedures for ending it and really setting that expectation from the beginning for all participants. Again, I think in the excitement of the newness of the matching, that sort of, and it feels maybe awkward to talk about the ending at the beginning, but these kinds of endings, I think, are much more normal for kids than we give them credit for. They get new teachers at the end, you know, at the end of every school year, they have to say goodbye to their teachers and say hello to new ones the following fall. There are lots of ways that we have natural endings in our lives that I think programs could really be capitalizing on and building this much more centrally into the program model. And I think it would help alleviate. We can't predict the future. We can't make relationships last but we can do something when they don't last and take some action and try to at least have a good wrap up to the relationship when it can't continue. Yeah. Thank you, Renee. And great advice for programs there. Um, And I think that's what originally had like steam coming out of my ears is I think I expected to see more of those situations where particularly where if it was the mentor that had kind of bailed on this and they couldn't get a hold of them that I would expect to see more staff stepping in and making sure that that young person uh, had a closure conversation and and didn't do what you said there, which was kind of internalize it and feel like, oh, I there's something about me that drove this adult away or or losing faith in adults that are there to care about you, right? I mean, that can be incredibly damaging to be told this person's going to be somebody that cares about you and then they don't, right? And so... Uh, I think that's good practice for our entire field is to really make sure that every young person to the degree possible, you know, gets something at the end of this that, you know, can help them make meaning of it and, and have some closure and be okay, no matter kind of how it ends. If I could just add to, I think uh, something we've talked about last, but I also think is important is that some of these mentors who do decide to opt out, you know, for whatever, it's much harder than they thought it was going to be. In some cases, they may not, they might not like mentoring as much as they thought they were going to like it. Like it's just not working out for them. I think, you know, we've observed is they can feel really guilty about this. So there's also a role, I think, for programs to play in helping mentors, you know, navigate a decision. If that's the decision they feel they need to make, and then helping them make that decision. And closure can be helpful to the mentors as well. Cause I, I, I definitely, you know, we've interviewed some mentors that you get the sense that they're walking away from the experience feeling really bad about themselves, feeling really bad about mentoring. And we don't want that either. We'd like these adults to sort of continue to engage in, you know, in volunteerism and, you know, reflect back on their experience in a more positive way. So I also see an opportunity for these closure procedures to help these adults too. I think we sort of assume the adults are going to be good at this and manage this process well. And I just don't think we can make that assumption. Again, I know I would not be so great at this. I would really look to a program for help if I were trying to end a mentoring relationship because it would not be something I would sort of be naturally good at. Yeah, no, I I don't think I would be good at that either. (laughs) I would probably try and avoid the painful parts of it as much as I I could, even if, you know, that's not what's going to be in the best interest of this, this young person. So wonderful thoughts from, from both of you around what's a kind of a complicated topic here and, I want to move away from the the study itself a little bit, but really kind of talk a little bit about one of the findings that, you know, came out of this. And that is that it looked like about a quarter of the matches in the study closed because of these mobility issues. Either the mentor moved away, the youth moved away, or or just kind of, you know, was unable to be contacted. And And that got me thinking a little bit about, and Tom, you mentioned there's other research that's found these kind of, you know, 
early closure rates of somewhere between 25 and 40. I've even seen up to 50%. We did a survey of programs nationally a few years ago that, you know, about a quarter of programs said not even half of their matches make it to the intended minimum duration. And, you know, we asked a little bit about why. And, you know, once again, I think it was a lot of this, well, they moved and, and something just came up. It's not because this relationship was falling apart. It was just life happening, right? And so that made me think about what that means for the mentoring field, because we we definitely frame mentoring as something that is often about these long-term kinship-like relationships that are transformative, and I'm this going to be this long-term asset to this young person. But the reality is, is like a lot of these matches never even really get out of the driveway, so to speak, right? They they kind of stall out and it winds up being this shorter experience, even in the the ones that lasted in your study were only lasting a, a couple of years. And obviously some of them went beyond that, but uh, many, many don't, right? And so I guess as a philosophical question to both of you, and I know you'll give me a, a good answer because you're both very thoughtful and, and bright people on this, like, what does that mean for how we frame mentoring? Should we stop talking about mentoring as inherently this long-term thing? Should we start positioning mentoring as a short-term boost that'll help a young person get over a hurdle that's kind of right in front of them, but not really put these long-term expectations on it. I'm just curious as to what each of you would say to to funders or parents or or other stakeholders in mentoring. Are we are we thinking about mentoring wrong by assuming that it will be long-term? So um, I guess first of all, I, I would say based on what we've learned from the study, not all closures are, are the same. Um, we found that participants related rated relationships that ended due to moves as higher in quality overall and more rewarding than relationships that ended for the more difficult reasons like the ones Renee described. In other words, when everyone understands that there is a clear, unavoidable reason for the closure, it's it's less distressing. So I, I think that, um, again, it's, it's, it's easier for everybody when there's a, a clear-cut explanation, everything was going fine, but it just can't continue because somebody moves. Um, I, I think those are some of the easier um, closures to, to manage. And because those types of closures are bound to happen, maybe one approach is for the program to make a commitment to provide mentoring over time and say it's not just this one relationship is your big chance but you know if there is a reason it, it ends that's unfortunate but um, we will be here for you and we will um, try to support you with a, another mentor and again laying that groundwork up front um, as Renee was saying that these things can happen and that we have a process to manage it. That's that's one approach. And the and the the, the shift is that the program is emphasizing a, a, an affiliation with the program rather than just you know a, a relationship with the mentor. So you know that they that you're sort of joining the program, and we will be here for you uh, for longer term. You know we can commit longer than an individual mentor can to um, provide support. And, you know, Big Brothers, Big Sisters does re make rematches and, you know, creates a new relationship. But as I said, that can sometimes <laughs> pose its own challenges because there is a comparison to the previous mentor who left but was great. But I think 
more generally, agencies should be thinking about some clearly stated goals that they have. What is their program really meant to do? What's What are they trying to accomplish? And then think about what is the length of time for a, a, a mentoring relationship to to achieve that. There may be some parents um, or some goals that can be learned or achieved on a shorter time frame, and you know they they work on certain things, and then there's a, a time limit. And but if you know there there are reasons to have long term matches. Um, there are strategies that can be used to make them happen. There's one program that I'm affiliated with, Friends of the Children, that makes a 12-year commitment to youth uh, from kindergarten through high school. And, you know, they've structured the program to make that happen. They have paid professional mentors um, so they can, you know, guarantee that mentoring that goes over time. So I think that the biggest issue, and 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 I think Renee pointed to this, is the the open-ended expectation so again, we're saying make a, a, a year-long commitment up front, but we hope this is going to go many more years or maybe even, you know, <laughs> forever as some, as some mentors thought. But I think the programs could achieve long-term relationships even if they took it incrementally. Um, and again, this is maybe where Renee was going, where you take it at a year at a time and and say you know you've met the the year it was a successful um experience have a nice ceremony congratulate everybody and then say so are you interested in continuing do you want to reenlist for another year and take it step by step so that there are some easier exit ramps if you know things are not going well or if you know they've they're ready to move on because it's been a good relationship, but you know things things change. The other point to make is even a difficult closure can be a growth opportunity for the mentee if it's addressed with intentionality and it's there's there's attention to helping them understand and learn from the experience. So again, that's um, what we were just talking about with having a really good procedure um, for processing it with the the youth and helping them to learn how to manage uh, when a when a meaningful relationship ends yeah so um, I completely agree with what Tom was saying about this sort of more stepwise progression um, so rather than starting with this expectation that it's going to last a lifetime starting with the expectation that it's going to last X amount of time whatever that amount of time is, and then potentially building on that. I have to say I'm a big tent person. I think there's room in the mentoring field for all kinds of relationships. You know, very structured short-term relationships, you know, longer-term relationships, these kind of potentially lifelong relationships. I'd like to see young people have access to all of these. I think we've kind of conflated mentoring with this idea of a long-term relationship as being how mentor mentoring gets defined. And then these other relationships are somehow falling short or not living up to that expectation. And I'd like to see us, and I think many people have, um, but really see all of us shift away from that and think of mentoring taking many different forms, one of which can be these long-term relationships. And I think that that really wonderful things can happen in these long-term relationships and they they can be sustained. And I think each of these 
agencies um, that participated with this can point to some of their long-term relationships. And in other research I've done, I've certainly gotten to see some of those up close and personal as well. So I just, I really see a place for those long-term relationships in young people's lives. But the notion that they're all going to become that, I think, is where we really get ourselves in trouble. So if we can get our practices to better align with what we know, which is people's lives change um, and they change in unexpected ways. So these kind of stepwise, you know, maybe you sign on for a year and then another six months or six months and then a year. Maybe you need to realign the relationship because circumstances have changed. And so whatever the programmatic expectations are for meeting times needs to shift because these two can't really possibly keep that, but they can keep a, uh, they can agree to another way of reconfiguring their relationship. There was a case in one of my other studies of an example of this where the young person, and the mentor had a really strong relationship and they'd been together for almost two years, but the, the youth was, you know, had transitioned into high school and now had lots of friends that he wanted to hang out with and lots of activities and the two were, tr- were really struggling to schedule. And the mentor was also really busy and had a full life. And he was feeling less and less needed by this young person. But interviewing the mother, the mother was saying, I really see a role. And I know that my kid sees a role for this mentor in his life. They're just not able to meet in the way they've met before. So that's, a, again, a role I see where that relationship they ended up breaking up, unfortunately. And the mother was um, heartbroken about it. Um, but I, I think there was a, an opportunity there to renegotiate that relationship and say, okay, you guys aren't going to get together in person once a week. It's just not going to happen. So how would you like this relationship between the two of you to work? Do you want to text? Do you want to do something once a month? Do you want to, you know, just to, to for, there's a role there for programs to help uh, relationships um, pause, take a break, decide to end or decide to continue and maybe to continue in a different kind of form than before. And I think that kind of approach might, you know, increase the number of these long-term relationships that really do go the distance, but I don't think they're ever all going to go. There's just too many other intervening factors. So it really becomes managing those intervening factors well, and, you know, managing the beginning and endings of these relationships in a way that people walk away feeling like they got something positive from the experience. Excellent, Renee. Thank you. And I, I am also a big tent person when it comes to thinking about, you know, how we define mentoring and, you know, but for so long, we've had this mantra of, you know, longer is stronger when it comes to these relationships. And I almost feel like we've done it to ourselves in this field by setting up, you know, kind of this one way of looking at it when the reality is, is that, as you just noted, these relationships might need more fluidity and flexibility and, and be able to transition into different forms. And, and that can be tough in a program context where there's a real desire to adhere to our model and our model has, you know, this these indicators of fidelity of around how often you meet and, and all of that. And so I appreciate your thoughts there around a, a way of perhaps thinking about this differently that allows for more flexibility and just meets these participants where they're at because you know as you indicated life life is going to happen and and we know that most of these matches will will be more brief than we perhaps think of them as as being so i uh, really appreciate your thoughts there only thing i'd add mike is just you know my fear is that people will read that last question that you asked my fear is what people will take away from this study is that it's sort of an indictment of these long-term relationships. Um, and I don't think that's the way to interpret the findings of the STAR study. You know, that there's really an important place for these long-term formal mentoring relationships, but 
but that we just need to be much more clear-eyed about how hard they can be and the investment that they require and the prominent role that programs need to play in, you know, uh, managing those relationships. Um, I just wouldn't want people to walk away with the sense that, you know, they're, they're, this is somehow a study that argues against those long-term relationships. Agreed. No. And, and I want to make that clear to the audience as well, that, uh, I am a big fan of long-term mentoring that that lasts decades and decades, and and I, I think if you were to you know really press me, I would say that that's probably the form of mentoring that I think has the most impact on on lives, right? And so that should be kind of a an ideal. Um, but uh, you know, I also appreciate both of you in your work looking at you know kind of the things that don't work so well sometimes and and being willing to admit that when different ways of looking at things or trying different ideas might also be applicable so um i think one of the most important things about this project has just been awareness first of all the the programs in our study um were eager to do this i really applaud them for wanting to take a look at at this topic and and that I think by being in the study, they they started thinking more about what they could do. And as we started giving them some some preliminary uh, feedback and re- results, they really took it upon themselves to come up with some creative approaches that made sense for their programs and their participants. And they, you know, once once they set their minds to it, they they came up with some strategies to, you know, train mentors in different ways, prepare them better for closures, to handle this process more um, thoroughly. And so I, I just think that that's maybe the, the most important thing is that when we, when we take Renee's approach, like, you know, um, failure analysis, looking at the problems is a great way to learn and a great opportunity for improvement. That kind of unleashed some um, energy and some creativity on the part of the programs. And so I think, you know, we've been giving some suggestions for what programs might do, but but they came up with many uh, approaches on their own. And we're actually, you know, following some of their examples in our recommendations. Excellent. I love it. Uh, applied research in real time. <laughs> going through this study makes them actually um, start working on on improvements even while it's happening. I love it. So I want to thank Tom and Renee for a great conversation today. And I really hope that our audience found this to be an insightful and, and fun conversation. I know it's a really meaty topic and I, I think they did a great job of kind of unpacking their findings and helping us figure out what's important to know about that that star study. So thanks for to both of you for for joining us today. And uh, just remember that uh, keep an eye on the NMRC website for new episodes in this series of podcasts and tools and and training materials and and all kinds of resources that can help your program, including free technical assistance. We offer that to mentoring programs nationwide. All you need to do is go to the NMRC website and there's a big request technical assistance button right on the top of the page and click that and we will assign you somebody from our cadre of experts around the country and get you the consultation and help that your program needs. So on behalf of OJJDP and the National Mentoring Resource Center, thanks again for joining us and remember, 
Research may seem definitive sometimes, but I think we truly decide what's meaningful in this field through open dialogue and open hearts and minds and conversations like the one we had here today. So thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time on Reflections on Research.